and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 233. These things don't have to be hair on fire. They don't have to be this terrible, you know, ruin is everyone's holiday experience. We can actually get really good at this. Let's calm people down and let's teach them and have them uh, aware of what to do next. This is... Back in 2008, the late great security researcher Dan Kaminsky discovered a serious security flaw in a ubiquitous internet technology, the domain name system, or DNS. If widely disclosed and exploited, the flaw, which affected many of the most common DNS name servers, could have facilitated a wide range of attacks, including website impersonation, email interception, and authentication bypass hacks. Aware of the risk? Kaminsky worked quietly for months with the Department of Homeland Security, major technology firms like Cisco and Microsoft, as well as DNS providers to get patches written and distributed, all before details of the vulnerability were made available to the public. Kaminsky's work after discovering the flaw are a great example of so-called coordinated disclosure. That's not how it happened this month, however, when another ubiquitous security vulnerability emerged, Log4Shell, a flaw in the open-source logging library Log4J that's a common element of thousands of on-premises and cloud applications used by enterprises, governments, critical infrastructure operators, as well as individuals. Rather than coordinated disclosure, the world experienced something akin to coordinated chaos with Log4J. It first came to light via a patch by the video game maker Mojang Studios to its Minecraft game on December 10th, That release by Mojang preceded public acknowledgement of the security flaw by the Apache Foundation, which had quietly issued a patch for it on December 4th. More chaos followed. Disclosure by Mojang was followed by confirmation of the flaw by security researchers, including one at the firm Alibaba in China. Reports surfaced almost immediately of active scanning of the Internet for applications that were vulnerable to the Log4Shell remote code execution flaw. Complicating matters, Apache's first attempt at a fix for the Log4j vulnerability in version 2.15.0 was itself flawed and didn't fully fix the problem. It didn't have to be this way, says our guest this week. Mark Stanislav is the vice president of information security at the firm Gemini. He notes that while Log4j was destined to be a big deal and require widespread patching and mitigation, The response to the flaw did not need to be as messy as it has become. In this conversation, Mark and I talk about what went wrong with the Log4j disclosure, the problem of information entropy, and how the internet community can come together ahead of the next vulnerability to make sure that the mistakes we saw this month aren't repeated. To start out, I asked Mark to tell us about how he first learned of the Log4Shell vulnerability. Mark Stanislav. VP Information Security, Gemini. Mark, welcome back on the Security Ledger podcast. It's been a while. It has been a while, Paul. It's great to be back with you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Mark, we've had you on a number of times. This time we're talking about the Log4j vulnerability and an issue you raise. I, I, I follow you on LinkedIn, as do many people, really around kind of how disclosure happened with this particular vulnerability and whether we as the InfoSec community handled this or this was handled in as 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 uh, capably as we could have. And, and you kind of really raised some questions about 
just how this all came to light and the scramble now that we're, we're kind of mid-scramble to address it. So I guess one question would be, how and where did you first hear about the Log4j vulnerability and um, kind of reprise your, your critique of, of how the InfoSec community has responded to this one? I think like a lot of information security professionals, these things happen when you're on vacation with your family. So I was getting ready to go. You know, this this really kind of all dropped on a, a, a Thursday night, really, if you were kind of still awake at that point. And um, like most security teams that are kind of being vigilant, our, our team caught wind of this uh, through some of the usual channels that, that I think a lot of us caught, uh, you know, publication through. And so, you know, like most organizations, chatter started, you know, what is this? How bad is this going to be? Uh, you know, impact to us. Uh, but then kind of going back to what you were, you know, opening up with, stepping back after that for a couple of days, where where was the coordinated disclosure on this? And, and what I mean by that for a lot of people that may not, you know, deal with vulnerabilities a lot, these kinds of issues that are really truly internet, like internet impacting, right? These are things that are at a scope and scale that are not a single product from a single vendor. Uh, Log4j, as we've learned about and heard stories about, is embedded across applications, uh, all sorts of types of applications, all sorts of vendors, and the depth at which the embedding of Log4j is sometimes not obvious to the consumers of those those vendors' uh, products. So, uh, in this case, the the critique really starts with when we have these internet scale issues, making sure that the either the vulnerability reporter, in this case, came from uh, the Alibaba uh, cloud team or the vendor that was, or the project in this case, that was at risk, uh, the Log4j project with the Apache Foundation, um, one of those two sources of information or, or awareness generally should reach out to a higher level entity like the CERT-CC out of Carnegie Mellon. Um, there are also other kinds of these computer emergency response teams around the world, uh, usually tethered to a country or a municipality or a territory. And why that matters is because those organizations have kind of their hooks into hundreds, if not thousands of vendors across the earth. And they can actually help on this coordinated disclosure to make sure that these issues come out in a kind of measured, pragmatic, and thorough way so that we don't have what I think a lot of us felt with Log4j, which was a, a little bit of abrupt chaos. I think that was a really good rundown of kind of like how the process is supposed to work. And there are kind of exemplary instances of that. I think about like 2008 and like Dan Kaminsky, right, with the, with the big DNS vulnerability that he discovered where there was this, you know, huge effort behind the scenes before it was ever disclosed to get the you know major DNS providers in the loop of obviously to fix the issue to write it up and describe it get you know all the principles involved obviously inform you know governments about this thing and then kind of do the fix globally and then disclose it right and that was kind of like the gold standard for coordinated disclosure and obviously that's not what happened this time one question is was there any way to, in your mind, to avoid just a holy mess, um, given how ubiquitous Log4j is, how many different Apache uh, frameworks it, it's in, how many applications it's uh, wrapped up in, either directly or indirectly? I mean, was there any way to avoid kind of the situation we're in now, which is, you know, tons of vulnerable systems, people trying to get situational awareness about whether they're exposed, active scanning and attacks going on at the same time, you know, yada, yada, yada. 
Yeah, it's, you know, these are these are very much unperfect uh, circumstances, no matter how much you can prepare and and rationalize uh, the approaches. And there's certainly been, you know, 30 plus years of coordinated incident response teams in computer security now. So, I, you know, we have experience here. I think when you look at things like Heartbleed, um, Heartbleed was uh, actually a pretty good outcome. I mean, there was a lot of back of the house coordination among, you know, the, the companies that run the internet, the companies like the Cisco's of the world, Juniper's of the world, the Microsoft's of the world. And, you know, really at, at the scale we're talking about, it's, it's really a tiered approach, right? So if you can get the project aware that there's an issue, um, one thing that did not go particularly well here was the initial patch, uh, as many of the listeners uh, of your podcast probably felt, um, the initial patch, the 2.15 release, uh, as we now know, did not actually solve the problem. Uh, some of the initial mitigations that were released did not really mitigate the issue to the depth that were maybe uh, believed. And I think that's kind of one of the layers here that we could unpack a bit, which is the the speed w that you have to act when you don't have coordinated disclosure is one problem. But the other problem is not getting a, a complete patch accomplished tested and validated with some of those major internet companies is really one of the bigger issues that we had here where we patched once, we patched again, and now Apache is going to have another release for a mostly unrelated issue, but another issue that's a, a security impacting one, uh, not nearly at the risk level that we saw before. Uh, but that's a lot of the hurdle for security teams and businesses and vendors. Patching once is a big effort the communications, the outreach, the uh, customer informationals, it, it's a lot. So to have to do that maybe once or twice or three times is really where a lot of the chaos has come from with Log4j. In terms of avoiding some of that chaos, I really think going back to the Heartbleed example, we can't we can't patch everyone and we can't solve every vendor's problems. But we what we really have to do as like I guess custodians of the internet in roles that some of us hold, we have to think about where is the most good going to come from, and it's usually top down uh, to be frank. So your your AWSs that can implement their web application firewall rules, your Cloudflares that can do similar, your you know, signal sciences or these other companies that are actually protection layers on the internet, one of the things we have to do is give ourselves time to patch. And the, the companies that front a lot of the major web properties and other services, we can actually reduce, reduce active harm to give people the time to actually get the patches fixed correctly, go out, patch those things. And then, you know, at some point it'll be a no issue, a, a non-issue. But I think that's really where the timeline here, the lack of coordination top down, the lack of involvement from major internet companies, uh, we didn't get a lot of the bulletproofing we could have gotten to give the secondary and tertiary vendors more time to react. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, I, I, I and I, you know, one, one theory about where this first cropped up was in Minecraft uh, gaming forums uh, and chat, and that this was kind of where the initial discovery was made of of this remote code execution vulnerability. It maybe was leveraged initially in those in those circles, and then kind of filtered up to the to the broader community of people who you know use the Apache uh, Struts framework and and others. One of the things that that shows is just how blurred the lines have become between what we might consider 
you know, enterprise, you know, production software used by, you know, huge multinationals and financial services companies and software that's running gaming platforms, <laughs> stuff that is used really at the consumer level, really used by kids. But under the hood, these are all in many cases, the same software platforms that are that are running these things. And that sort of complicates things as well. It it broadens the population of would-be hackers, adversaries, folks poking around, right? Yeah, there's there's really a kind of this struggle, right? Because we want, uh, in, in some ways, we want ubiquitous software because when we have an issue, it's an issue that we can fix and roll out to many people. Um, one of the things that I actually experienced at uh, one of my previous employers, a, a security researcher on my team named Kelby Ludwig, he actually found a security issue in one of the kind of major protocols that handle a lot of uh, how we interact with kind of authentication, which is SAML. And what he found was originally an, a, a, a single issue in a single SAML implementation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we thought, hey, you know, big deal. We'll, we'll let them know. We'll get it patched. And as, as he dove in a little bit farther, he realized that it wasn't actually a SAML implementation in that library. It was actually SAML implement, implementations in many libraries from many projects, from many vendors. And it really turned out to be more of kind of what we call an anti-pattern. So a lot of people did a thing a similar way, and that similar way was the was the ubiquitous kind of cascading uh, risk. And I, I think when we see you know those cases, that's a really hard problem because now you have to deal with lots and lots and lots of different vendors providing this library. In a log4j case, we get the value that everyone's focus, time, and attention can be on this one effort. Uh, that's in some ways a better case, but the problem with log4j is really the breadth of implementation, and that the implementation may not be hey, I'm going to use this library from this one vendor. It may be, be that the library you're using uses another library that uses another library and downstream they use log4j for logging. Right. And so it's a very complex, like nesting, you know, kind of rushing nesting dolls of uh, risk that it's not just the on the nose, oh, we run this thing on our environment. We've got to go patch that. It's we've got to find out where log4j could be hidden in all these things we've deployed across our environment. And that's where, you know, that's why you have people talking increasingly, including, of course, the Biden administration about things like software bill of materials. Right. Um, do, do you think that in this case, if, if that type of um, you know, software bill of materials, either manual or automated, um, was used at organizations that, that we'd be in a better place than we are right now? And, and, um, and what are some of the what are some of the complications around that? It's yeah, it's a great question. I think I think at the very top end, I would I would be shocked if any vendor or or really consumer would ever say, "Hey, I don't want to know what software is building this other software." I, I think it's very reasonable, and it gets us you know maybe eighty percent of the way there just by knowing what's where. Um, where it gets a little bit trickier is when open source projects, for instance. Uh, fork off where part of the great part of open source is that you can take a project and depending on the license terms, create your own project from that first project. And, you know, log4j and similar things like that, they, they do have this, uh, you know, a legacy of other projects that are initially based or partially based on one project. And so that makes a little bit of the software bill of materials harder to have 100% confidence in because you don't necessarily know the genesis of every project that you're using in open source. It could actually be you know, very spiritually aligned uh, five years back, but maybe that vulnerability was uh, in existence five years back. And now your other project has that. So I think it, I think it gets us part of the way there in a, in a log4j scenario. Um, the other part of this is, and really kind of going back to the idea of coordinated disclosure, 
um, organizations like CERT CC out of Carnegie Mellon, they, uh, I think as of today, I took a quick look, they've got a list of 644 different business entities, vendors, et cetera, uh, that they're trying to track for Log4j impact. Of those 640, 1,644, excuse me, um, they have 120 showing affected, 78 showing not affected, which leaves us with about 1,400 vendors that we don't even know whether or not they're affected. Now, the vendor might not know. Uh, they maybe haven't gotten in touch with CERT or maybe haven't responded to emails, et cetera. But I, you know, we're, we're multiple weeks onto this problem. So part of it is knowing what you have and where. The other part is that you still have to react. And I think the reaction time of vendors, when they even know, it can be a slippery slope. Uh, I've seen vendor responses that are simply uh, you know, go into this, uh, this, this jar file where this log4j software is kind of, it's basically just a zip file at the end of the day. And they're basically saying, Hey, delete the, delete this file out of the zip file and rezip it up and you're going to be safe. Now that's a very, <laughs> that's a, maybe a very quick way to solve the, the immediate risk, <laughs> kind of but it's also very civil brittle. war battlefield surgery approach, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. They've, they've cauterized the wound, uh, as, as, and the thing is they're Air. asking you, you <laughs> bite on this cauterize. bullet. <laughs> yeah. They, they want you to cauterize your own wound. In yeah. And that's the kind of vendor response we honestly see. And, and so this yeah. is a, you know, knowing what you have is one thing, but having the in-house expertise to know how to fix it or the, you know, the engineers that are not, you know, on PTO like me that are, that are, uh, you know, uh, available to do it. And, and we also have to think about the supply chain here, right? How many vendors are downstream from other vendors where they're waiting for a patch to be released and then they'll get the patch and then they have to ship that patch to someone else, right? There's, there's a, there's a lag here that's implicit, which again, goes back to the, the more time we have, the more kind of um, belt and suspenders we can put into place for the internet, the better we all have a chance to get patched before bad things happen. Yeah. And I mean, one of the other kind of factors here, of course, is that a lot of this software that needs to be updated or patched is open source software, right? And, um, you know, I, I, there was an article, I think, in the Times or something just talking about kind of the burden on the folks who are, by and large, volunteering their time to maintain Log4j, who all of a sudden were called upon very, you know, urgently to get this fix out, as you pointed out earlier, you know, didn't necessarily get it right in the first try. And you can be critical of that. But at the end of the day, you know, these are folks who were volunteering, you know, and I think the world is really coming to grips with that. If we didn't back in the, you know, heartbleed days, you know, just just how reliant we are on these, you know, small projects uh, maintained by a, a few people, but just incredibly important. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's tricky, right? Because we have, you know, Google uh, many years back created a kind of like internet bug bounty for some of the most critical open source projects. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, what's critical in, is- In the wake of a, Heartbleed, they did that. Yeah. They were going to put, yeah. put some money towards kind of, you know, uh, fixing the commons as it were. Yeah. And, and they also, you know, they also have like a very, uh, as I understand it, a very kind of massive, you know, fuzzing deployment ac across many of those platforms. So they're constantly, you know, doing computer automated uh, further and further depth testing, uh, you know, consistently. And in fact, Mozilla had a, a recent security issue a few months back. They have a very robust security team, a very ro robust security fuzzing component, and they still miss this vulnerability that was eventually found. So even when we invest, whether it's people or literal just capital or technology, um, a lot of this is still always going to be a little, you know, we're, we're looking in the rearview mirror. So everyone will go, I'm sure, well, why didn't we invest more in Vlog4j? Why, why this? Why that? And the reality is it's, it's always going to be the next project that we ask ourselves why we didn't invest more there. And it will be in hindsight. It will be reactive. And we have, we, we as a, 
you know, world, I guess, we have invested a lot more in open source security uh, in the last you know decade than we did the few decades prior to that, which is good. Um, the scope and the scale is still overwhelming. The complexity of software is overwhelming. We're still using um, you know many pieces of software in older programming languages that have a lot of inherent vulnerabilities. So, you know, even when we kind of put the investment in open source, I'd, I'd kind of give a parallel to people that maybe haven't worked with corporations before. Um, but many corporations don't have a particularly more robust security story than many open source projects. Uh, whether we want to believe that or not, you know, there, there are some great security programs out there for sure. But, uh, you know, many companies have that one person who's, you know, uh, you know, Jill has been there for 20 years as a software engineer. She's keeping this one major component alive and that's deployed across, you know, every Windows server on Earth. Right. So we, we, we can look at these things a little bit, um, uh, you know, pointed when, when the moment happens. But it's really hard on the scale we're talking about across all of the technology, across all the world to ever really solve this as a problem other than robustness of secure by design software secure um, coding and programming languages, continual investment and, and increases in investment by you know, organizations like Google and others that have the capital and the teams to do so. Um, we'll never get it 100%, but I think there are those areas where we can keep making incremental improvements. And I mean, one one interesting thing here, and this was pointed out, I think, in, in the in the LinkedIn thread that that uh, that you started, um, was that there was actually a demonstration at Black Hat of this type of vulnerability in Log4j, um, not this particular RCE, but kind of the general category of this this type of um, vulnerability. A few years ago, it, that was surprising to me that that in and of itself didn't engender. A much closer look at log4j and and these types of problems. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it's interesting and and one of the one of the struggles there is when that first um we'll call it we'll call it a bypass for lack of a better word of the first patch that came out for log4j when I saw kind of the the uh you know the proof of concept the payload that you could use to bypass that first patch I looked at that and I said, "Oh, that looks very similar to the kinds of techniques used for um, there's a there's a whole class called server side request forgeries, and these are kind of yes. increasing yeah. uh, vulnerability really classes you see on the internet, yeah, and very very impactful when they happen as well. And um, the the technique that was shown is very similar to a technique that a security researcher, I believe he goes by, uh, I want to say it's Orange uh, Orange Sai." He's presented twice at Black Hat about these kinds of vulnerabilities. So even when it's not the same vulnerability, this is uh, one of the takeaways I had about this larger topic is the coordination of the Apache Foundation, the open source maintainers of this project, and only really working with maybe Alibaba Cloud, as I understand it. Other things, of course, could have happened in you know the background that I'm not aware of. Um, the, the lack of robustness testing of this mitigation is also something that you will miss out on if you're not doing kind of this multi-party coordinated disclosure where you could have security researcher teams at these major corporations validating the thesis that this patch was sufficient. And so I think that kind of shows, you know, security's hard. Uh, I think we can all agree on that, but it's a lot harder when we don't have different perspectives to your point about, you know, the kinds of people like me that go to Black Hat, see these talks by Orange Side, you know, two years in a row. And then I see this bypass and I go, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's hard to do on scale if you don't have the scale of, you the know, pe the, the people in the room, the people in the yep. virtual room. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there's always someone to blame. So Mark, you know, who do we blame? And, you know, if you were um, security czar, you know, if you were in Jen Easterly's seat, what lessons would you take away from the response to this? And, you know, how do we do better next time? It's it's a great question. I, I think the number one thing, and this is, you know, perhaps a good life lesson is when you don't know necessarily what to do next, you should ask for help. And the good news is, we have, again, CERT CC at Carnegie Mellon. They were the first CERT back in, I think, 1988. Uh, they have a lot of experience doing this. We have the first organization, which has, I think, 600 plus members around the world, most of the countries around the world that have a CERT themselves. Um, we have that in- entire organization that's been also around for 30 some years. The the real gap here, I think, was, and again, I don't have 100% confidence in this, so the Apache Foundation can uh, you know, ideally tell you uh, differently, but I think the next logical step after Alibaba Cloud had reached out, um, had they not gone this route themselves, is the Apache Foundation contacts either their partnerships in FIRST or, their, uh, or CERT CC and say, hey, we have this kind of very serious security issue and we need help getting the internet safe. You know, what do we do? And having done this with CERT CC before, they know what to do. They're very confident in doing this and they're very good at doing this. So I think the first step maybe is the awareness. So, hey, Jen Easterly, if you're listening, let's make sure that organizations, open source projects are reached out. Maybe it's a blog post, maybe it's an open letter, but let's make sure that the community knows if you get yourself in this situation in the future, these are the avenues you should take first, second, and third. And those are the people that will help guide you down the path, coordinate disclosure, help on patch uh, and mitigation support, help on validation of patches. So I really think it's not a lack of ability. I think it's a lack of awareness. And so if we can make open source projects aware that they don't have to figure this out themselves, uh, we, we all have a fighting chance to have a little bit more runway a little bit more air cover and a little bit more success on these things going forward. Uh, We have the capabilities, we have the people, we just gotta get the right people in contact at the right time. One of the things that when we look backwards at these stories, uh, you know, certainly we're still a little bit in hair, hair on fire mode, and I think that's to be expected. What I really would love to see is more uh, more of this kind of awareness driven, where we don't react to these situations. There's there's a lot of excitement <laughs> and fanfare, and I, I think one of the one of the risks yeah. there is in context. Yeah. Log4j and this vulnerability is absolutely a bad thing, but why it's bad and how it can be mitigated and how it can be responded to in, in a future case. I, I, the lessons, the lesson here isn't about log4j. The lesson here truly is about how we slow down, react to things in a, a method, you know, methodical way, ask for partnerships to coordinate with. And these things don't have to be hair on fire. They don't have to be this terrible, you know, ruin is everyone holiday experience. We can actually get really good at this. And I think that's the confidence I want to see from my partners in the community and the leverage from great organizations like First Insert CC is let's calm people down and let's teach them and have them uh, aware of what to do next. This is just like fire drills or tornado drills or, you know, it's about building muscle memory and awareness. And once you have that, the scenario is still bad, but it's not what this was. And I think we can do, we can do a lot better. Mark Stanislav of Gemini, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks for having me again, Paul. It was great. Appreciate it. Mark Stanislav is the Vice President for Information Security at the firm Gemini. Gemini.